Our scripture lesson is found in the Gospel of John, chapter 12, reading from verse 20 of the 12th chapter of the Gospel of John. The scene is in Jerusalem during the last few days of our Lord's life. The passage takes place immediately after John's recording of the triumphal entry of Jesus into the city of Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. And there were certain Greeks among them that came up to worship at the feast. The same came therefore to Philip, which was of Bethsaida of Galilee, and desired him, saying, Sir, we would see Jesus. Philip cometh and telleth Andrew, and again Andrew and Philip tell Jesus. And Jesus answered them, saying, The hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Verily, verily, I say unto you, Except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. He that loveth his life shall lose it, and he that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. If any man serve me, let him follow me, and where I am, there shall also my servant be. If any man serve me, him will my father honor." Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this cause came I unto this hour. Father, glorify thy name. Then came there a voice from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. The people therefore that stood by and heard it said that it thundered. Others said, an angel spake to him. Jesus answered and said, This voice came not because of me, but for your sakes. Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. This he said, signifying what death he should die. As we said, the scene is the last week of the Lord's life. It's that last trip that Jesus made to Jerusalem, the one that culminated in the crucifixion of Jesus on Good Friday on Calvary. The city was filled with people for that festival occasion, and I am sure that the chief topic of conversation on practically all tongues was that of the name of Jesus. People had been knowing about him now for three years, and the intense interest in him had increased and now they knew the deep and profound hostility of the temple to him, and that the temple and its leadership had really committed itself to his destruction. And so they wondered whether he would be at the feast and what would take place during those days. And now they have seen him as he has come riding into the city on a donkey on Palm Sunday. And the crowds have, terror, have disturbed profoundly the the Jewish leadership by their cries of Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. The multitudes in the city of Jerusalem had ascribed to Jesus messianic titles, messianic passages, and the temple now has no choice but to plan for his destruction. In the midst of this kind of excitement and in the midst of this kind of turmoil, there are some people that John tells us about that come to the, to the disciples. You will notice he says very simply, without any introduction and without any further explanation of them and their role, we are simply told about some Greeks, certain Greeks that came to worship at the feast, 
And they came to Philip and said to him, Sir, we would like to see Jesus. Now, John never explains why they came or what they meant when they said we would like to see Jesus. He never explained to us whether they ever really got to see him in the way that they were talking about here. They had the opportunity, certainly in the course of the week, to see him hanging on a cross. And it may be that they had seen him as he rode the donkey into the city of Jerusalem on that Sunday before that Friday. But as to whether they got any private conversation with him, there is no indication, and perhaps they did not. But what we are told is that immediately after the disciples, Philip and Andrew came to Jesus and said, Master, there are some Greeks here. There are some non-Jews here that want to see you. We are told that immediately Jesus began to speak to them about the cross. John does not take the time to explain any, any more than what Jesus said about why Jesus would relate the presence of Greeks to his discussion of the cross. But if you will study the Gospel of John carefully, I think you will find, come to the conclusion without any hesitancy, that what John is saying to us is that when the Greeks, non-Jews, came and said, we would like to see Jesus, Jesus immediately began to think of his ministry, not to Israel, not to the 12 tribes of the Jews, but now Jesus began to think of his ministry to the whole world. He had come to his own, and his own received him not. His destiny is now settled. It is a matter of but hours, and they will kill him. And there are some people that represent all of the non-Jews in the world that come. And Jesus says, if the world is to know about me, and if the world is to enjoy my salvation, then there is only one way, and that is to let the wrath of the Jews be poured out upon me, and the cross is my only option if the world is to know about Christ. It's a very moving passage, obviously very significant to John as he tells us the story of Jesus and obviously profoundly significant to the Savior too as he related these representatives of all of the rest of the world to the cross of our Lord Jesus. And he shows us that there is no question in Jesus' mind, but if the world is to know salvation, it can only know it through his accepting the will of his Father in going to the cross. There is no way except by way of the cross. And so he immediately speaks about that. You will notice how he does it. Philip and Andrew come and tell Jesus about the Greeks. And immediately Jesus speaks, and it is in a non sequitur style almost. You almost have the feeling that he is saying, really, what do they have to do with it? And yet they're the ones that have precipitated it. Greeks want to see him. He talks about the cross. Verily, the hour is come. His hour has come. The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. In John, that word glorified before it is over with is synonymous with being crucified. The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if that corn of wheat die, it will bring forth much fruit. He that loves his life shall lose it. And he that hates his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. And so he says, the hour is come for me. And if I save my life and do not die, then my life will be lost. But if I lose my life in the crucifixion, then my life will be gained. Because it is a universal principle that he that loves his life will lose it. And the one who hates his life in this world for eternal things 
shall keep it unto life eternal. And then he says, If any man serve me, let him follow me. And where I am, there shall also my servant be. And so he speaks about the cross. Now, it should not be surprising that Jesus should speak about the cross. It's that close. But you know, in Jesus' life, there never was a day when it was not close. From the opening moments of his earthly existence, after his birth, the shadow of death and the shadow of tragedy stalked him. You remember that he was not very old when Herod sent out his soldiers to kill him. An army with spears and swords sent out against a newborn babe. You will remember that when Mary and Joseph brought him into the temple, the old prophet Simeon stood up and said, This child is set for the fall and the rising again of many in Israel. And then he turned to Mary and said, And a sword will pierce your heart also. This babe will bring great heartache to you. There is something about his life that is tragic that brings pain and suffering to people. You will remember that when he was introduced to Israel, John the Baptist introduced him. And the introduction was veritably a sentence of death. You will remember that John's first presentation of Jesus was, Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sins of the world. Now, a lamb may be for eating for you and for me, and a lamb may be for clothing for some, but a lamb in Israel was first of all and primarily a religious object. And when he spoke and said, the Lamb of God, the thing that came to the minds of all of the Jews that were there were the millions of lambs that had been sacrificed throughout Israel's history from the days of Moses the, at the tabernacle, on the altar, and in the temple, the multiplied millions of lambs that had shed their blood in sacrifice. In sacrifice. And now John the Baptist looks at Jesus and a, a 30-year-old young man and says, Behold, the Lamb of God. You've provided your lambs that have been sacrificed, and now God has provided his lamb, and that is the purpose of his coming, that his blood might be shed, that his life might be poured out, that he might be the, the sacrifice for our sins. You can understand why the cross was never far from Jesus' mind. And so when he speaks to Nicodemus before it's over with, you will remember that Jesus looks and says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And that expression is used in John for the crucifixion. He's talking to Nicodemus about a new life and a new birth. He's talking about a life not his own that can come in and transform his life and give him a new existence. But he says it will only come as the Son of Man is lifted up and is crucified. When the 5,000 were fed, you will remember that Jesus turned and said, the true bread that you need is the bread that comes down from heaven, not the fish and the barley loaf. But what you need is veritably my body and my blood. And except you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you can have no part in me and you cannot know eternal life. He couldn't even speak about the good shepherd without slipping in and the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Or when Peter turns and says, now we know who you are, you're the Christ. Jesus says, yes, that's right, and now we must go to Jerusalem, and there I will suffer at the hands of evil men and will be crucified. It was at the core of his consciousness because it was at the heart of his sense of mission. Why he came, 
He knew this was the purpose for which he came. You will notice how he says, The hour is come, my hour. The hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this cause came I unto this hour. Father, glorify thy name, and that glorification of Christ and of the name of God the Father was to be through the cross. Always there. No way he could fulfill his Father's purposes for himself except through that cross. Now, when he speaks this way about it, let me say this. There is never a moment when he faces it with undue bravery. Never the overly brave person. In the, I do not speak it in any uh, critical sense or any demeaning sense. You read the text. Always when he spoke of the cross, he spoke soberly, never cavalierly, and never with any false bravado. You will find that he looked upon it as a curse, and he looked upon it as something that he did not want. He knew that the redemption of those Greeks and the redemption of all the millions of the world that they represented was hanging on his obedience to the Father. Committed to it? Yes. And when he prays, that line where he says, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. I think the King James punctuation is wrong because I think it should be followed not by a colon but by a question mark. Because I think that what he is really saying is, What shall I say? Shall I say, Father, save me from this hour? Yes, I'd like to say that but that I cannot do because God the Father sent me to give my life on the cross, and I have no option, and I will not back away from it. As Paul in the third chapter of Galatians, verse 13 says, to the Jew the cross was an accursed thing. And I think you sense that here as he says, now is my soul troubled. Philip says, now is my soul in turmoil. And what shall I say? Shall I pray, Father, save me from this hour? Yes, I'd like to. But that luxury is not mine. It was an accursed thing to him. The cross may be a symbol of beauty and of aesthetic, religious niceness to you and to me. But to him it was a symbol of something tragic and horrible. And all that was natural within him recoiled. You will remember, perhaps you know the story that tradition says is related to this passage. In the Syriac literature of the early church, there is a letter that has been preserved. It, probably, it is probably apocryphal, but it is very interesting. From a king from Edessa by the name of Abgar, Abgar the Black. Why he was called that, we do not know, but he was sent, uh, the, the letter tells about him sending a representative to Jesus. And he came according to tradition at this point. There are some who have supposed that it was Abgar's representatives that really were these Greeks. In that letter, in the Syriac literature, it says, we have heard about you and your marvelous ministry, and of course I'm putting it in my language, about your marvelous ministry, how you have healed the sick, you've cleansed the lepers, you have healed the lame, you have even raised the dead but we hear that your people have not received you and that the leaders among your people have rejected you and are even planning to kill you. 
we would like for you to know that you would be very welcome in our kingdom. And Abgar goes on to imply that he would be perfectly willing to sit at the foot of the table as king for Jesus to sit at the head of the table as the greater king. And then he says there's a curse that's been on the royal family and we believe that if you could come, since they tell us that you do not need chemicals or herbs, but you can heal by word, that could perhaps you could free our household from the curse that's on it. But we want you to know that you would be welcome in our kingdom and in my palace and at the royal table. Now, it's a lovely story. And it's the kind of story that ought to have been written even if it weren't true. Because in this hour, Jesus looked at the options and there it was. Shall I turn away? And he said, no. Doesn't matter whether I want it or not. Doesn't matter whether I like it or not. This is the purpose for which God sent me. But more than that, if I back away, my life will be sterile. If I back away, my life will be fruitless. But if I do my Father's will and go to the cross, then even those Greeks that came, who know nothing about Israel and perhaps are, are Moses' faith, perhaps they knew some, but nevertheless, those that they represent who live in pagan polytheistic darkness, even those can be saved if I am obedient. Now there you see the commitment of Jesus. The cross right at the center of his sense of mission and destiny and personhood. A curse, something he did not want, but from which he would not turn. But when I've said all that, all that's introduction. Because that brings me really to what I want to preach about tonight. And that's something that I never saw in this passage for many years. Because that really is the way I read the passage, just as I have translated it in my own language to you. But I want you to notice something about verse 24 and verse 25 and verse 26 in this passage, if you have it. And if you have it, look at it. And if not, listen carefully to the wording. For many years I read verse 24 as if it were saying this, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except this corn of wheat, Jesus, fall into the ground and die, it abides alone. But if this grain of wheat, Jesus, dies, then this life will bring forth much fruit. If this man, Jesus, loves his life, he will lose it. But if this man, Jesus, hates his life in this world and gives it up, he will keep it unto life eternal. But that isn't what it says. The passage is not particular. It is universal. And when he speaks about the cross here, it is not just the cross on Calvary. It's as many crosses as there will be redeemed people in the kingdom of God. Do you notice how universal it is? Look. Except any corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it will abide alone. But if any grain of wheat dies, it will bring forth much fruit. 
any man that loves his life and hugs it and keeps it will lose it. But any man that hates his life and gives it up for me and for my Father will keep it unto life eternal. Now notice the proof of it. Do you notice the next verse, verse 26? If any man serve me, let him do what? Let him follow me. And where is he going? He goes to Calvary. If any man will serve me, let him follow me. And where I am, there shall also my servant be. And if I am to meet you in that beyond the resurrection life, you're going to have to go through your Calvary the same way I go through mine. If you are to be a part of that eternal kingdom with me, you're going to have to go through the same experience spiritually that I go through physically this week. There shall also my servant be. If any man serve me, him will my father honor. And if you follow him through Calvary, you can count on it. It is divine promise. The Father will honor you. Do you notice how he speaks and says, The hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Then he speaks and says, verse 28, Father, glorify thy name. Then came there a voice from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. And the only way God can ever be glorified in my life or yours is as we as servants follow him to Good Friday and Calvary, the crucifixion, and to new life. Now, that puts it in a totally different light, doesn't it? What it really means is that if the cross was at the core of Christ's consciousness, at the center of his sense of mission and destiny, there is supposed to be also a sense of the cross at the heart of your Christian sensibilities and Christian self-consciousness too. Now you say, what do you mean by that? Really, I think it is simply this. The only way that Christ can be exalted within my life is for there to come an end to my way. And the only way that his spirit can rule within me is for my spirit to be crucified and surrendered to him. Isn't that what Paul was talking about? Magnificent to me the way the word fits together. I am crucified with Christ. I've come to an end. Nevertheless, I live. Yet it isn't I, there was an end to that. Yet it isn't I that live, it is Christ that liveth in me. Death and resurrection, Christ living in me. And the life which I now, since that crucifixion, live in the flesh, I live not in my strength, but by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave his life to me that it might be lived out within me. Christ in me, the hope of glory. But for that to be true, there has to come an end to my way. It was the Second World War, and I was dealing with a soldier after an evangelistic service one night. 
And I looked at him and said, what are you doing here? Why did you come? He said, well, I want to be a Christian. I said, why do you want to be a Christian? He said, I don't want to go to hell. And I said, oh, nobody had talked about hell. He said, no, I don't want to go to hell. I said, well, I don't suppose that's the best motivation in the world, but it's a valid motivation and a, and a right one. I said, you want to be a Christian? Will you give your life to Christ? And he looked right back at me and said, oh, no, I couldn't do that. And, you know, in my fault religiosity, I was shocked. And I thought he must not have understood me because I'd never met anybody who was halfway religious who wouldn't say very quickly, oh, yes, I've given my life to Christ or want to give my life to Christ. So I looked at him and said, really now, you want to be a Christian? Yes. Will you give your life to Christ? And repeated it. He said, oh, no, I couldn't do that. We were kneeling in an invitation, inquiry room situation. And I said, why can't you give your life to Christ? He said, well, mister, I've got plans for my life. And how can I give my life to Christ if I've got plans for my life? And I backed off and said, thank you, Lord, for letting me meet once in my life an honest man. Because he saw the issues very clearly. He knew that if he gave his life to Christ, his control over it died at that point. I love the fact he, it's a crucifixion. Did you ever notice how hard it is to hold anything if you got a spike through the palm of your hand? It's just rather difficult to hold very tightly onto anything if you've got a big spike stuck through the palm of your hand. It's no accident in the providence of God and the wisdom of a teaching Savior in spirit that it was a crucifixion. How graphically to let us know that if we are to be followers of him, we can hold nothing. We must let him hold us. We can possess nothing. We must let him possess us. So I turn to this passage in the gospel where it speaks about if a man saves his life, he'll lose it. If he loses his life, he will gain it. He looked at that and said, well, that's very interesting. I said, you never saw that before? He said, no, I never saw that before. He said, what is that book? Is that book religious? And I held up my testament and said, well, yeah, it is religious. He said, I said, you've never seen a New Testament before? He said, well, I don't guess I have. He said, that's not the book the chaplain gave me when I signed up and joined the army, is it? I said, yes, that's the book. I said, what'd you do with it? Oh, he said, I gave it to my roommate. I didn't want it. I knew it was religious. He said, maybe I'd better get one of these and read it. And I said, I think that's a good idea. I said, where'd you come from? Where did you live before you joined the army? I thought he'd tell me, you know, some remote foreign country where the gospel had never penetrated. He said, oh, I grew up in Chicago. But you don't have to grow up in Chicago. You can grow up in Wilmore. And you can be an Asbury student and still have plans for your life. But no man's a Christian until there's a death to his way. And we death to the, to, the, to the man's way and Christ's way, Christ's life becomes ours. His way becomes ours. You know, uh, 
That's the reason that conversion is usually painful. The world doesn't understand that. They don't understand why a man weeps when he becomes a Christian. But it's a death. No one except the man involved can know how many things die when he says yes to Christ. Maybe a girlfriend, a romance. It may be a cherished ambition. It may be a secret habit, may not be so secret habit. But normally, those are precious things that die at that moment. We like them, and we don't want to let them go. And the only reason we let them go is because we are going to get something better. If I hold these little things, I'll never have him. But if I turn them loose, I can have the Christ of God. Then he will take my sterile life and make it fruitful. And let me ask you, can you show me anybody who doesn't want his life to be fruitful? Deep in the heart or back in the head of every person here is a desire for your life to count. But I want to tell you something. When you come to the end of it, if it's been your life instead of his, your life will be like those sand castles you built on the seashore. And one day as you were building them, you forgot and the tide came in on you and one big wave came and washed it all away. The labor of an afternoon was gone in a moment. And you can spend 70 active, busy, vigorous, Aggressive years living for yourself. And when you come to the end of it, it will amount to zero. But you give that life to Christ and turn it loose. And he'll plant it and cultivate it. And there will be eternal fruit out of it. And one of the astounding things is that for eternity, you'll look back and say, did that really happen in my life? You can do that because you get no credit for it. It will have been his work within you. Now, that's true not only at conversion, but that's, what, what, that's the reason we preach here entire sanctification. Because you will find that after your conversion, there is still a self-life within you that hinders. Paul in Galatians 5 speaks about the flesh lusting against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh, so that you cannot do the things that you would. You walk with Christ, and after your conversion, in spite of that burst of new life that has come, a new power that has come, Christ within you, you will find that there is still an area within, possessed by the enemy, and your self-life is aggressive and actively in control there and competitive with that new life within between my sophomore and junior year at Asbury. I was in a camp meeting and God began to deal with, my, deal with me. Excuse me, it was between my freshman and my sophomore year. I had been a Christian for five years. 
And God said to me, Dennis, can I have your whole life? Will you let me have that corner you're still holding? Only God knows how many times I had said to him with my lips, I want you to have my whole life. And he said, okay, let me take it. And I remember coming to grips with the fact that there was resistance in me, a resistance that did not want to capitulate. And I can remember the turmoil that came when I found something within me that, that I couldn't kill, that, I, that wouldn't die. And the conflict became bitter between his will and mine. And he said, can I do with you what I want to do with you? And I said, Lord, I want you to do that so much. But there's something within me that resists. I remember I quit kneeling finally and just sort of, I was glad there was no one there but one other person praying with me. And I remember stretching out flat on the floor and saying, God, I can't. There's something within me that won't, won't say yes. And the question came, was it to be Christ? I'd been a Christian five years. I knew Christ. But there was something within me that didn't want to yield, surrender. And in the middle of the night, in the dark hours, God said to me, Dennis, you can't crucify it. No man can crucify himself. It's sort of hard to put those nails in by yourself, isn't it? He said, will you let me do it? I thought I'd die. I probably would have preferred to. Fondest ambitions of my life, the ego defenses, the desire to protect my own self. And that night, God put the nail in. God knows I haven't been all that I should have been since. But let me say this in honest witness. There came a freedom then for which I would not trade the world where he controls. And in my life, which I now live in the flesh, not mine anymore, I live it for the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me then you are his for him to dispose of as he will. And you know, usually you think he's going to bury you. That's what I thought. I knew that if I surrendered fully to him and he got total possession of me, he'd take the most, a hole off in the most remote, unknown place and stick me in it and pour the dirt in on and leave me forever and that'd be the end. Did you notice what the text says? If a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abides alone. Or except it fall into the ground and die, it abides alone. But if it dies, God will bring forth his own fruit out of it. You see, I am the biggest hindrance God has to doing his will in my life until there has been a death to self and a crucifixion of the ego to where the spirit of Christ is regnant and my spirit is submissive. Let me ask you, have you reached that point? 
Norman Grubb. Many of you know about him. You've read his writings. Son-in-law, C.T. Studd. The head of Worldwide Evangelization Crusade. Better than a thousand missionaries around the world. Norman Grubb told me, he said, Dennis, I was a missionary in Africa. I had been in Africa for 11 years. And he said, I knew there were still reservations within me. He said, I was going down river alone. He said, I pulled my boat over to the side of the river, pulled it up on the bank, got in on my face before God and said, God, finish Norman Grubb. Crucify. Get me so crucified that you can live and reign within me to where I don't hinder you anymore. He said, and he did. And I wanted to mark the site and the hour. He said, I rummaged through my pockets and all I had was a postcard. And so he said, I drew a tombstone on it and put the date and put Norman Grubb and mailed it to myself. And he said, there's where the chain started. What do you lose? Your life. What do you gain? His. What does it mean to believe? The believer is the fellow who believes that his life, Christ's life, is better than his own. What an exchange. But that's what he offers. And then we can stand back and see God do his bit, glorify himself in the likes of you and me. Isn't that a miracle? Isn't that amazing? Quickly, let me say just one or two things and I'm through. You know, you have a choice as to whether you will let the self-life continue to live or whether you will let him crucify that self-life. But you know what you don't have a choice over? You have no choice over the fact that if you protect the self-life, your life will be sterile. The marvelous thing is that if you make that surrender and let him have you and possess you, and you have your own crucifixion with him presiding, then he has no choice but in his own way and wisdom to make your life fruitful in the things of eternity. Now, the last thing. What was it the Greeks wanted? They wanted to see Jesus. And you know the biggest hindrance to anybody seeing Jesus and the likes of you and me is the self-life that is within us. It is when your will and mine is in the way that Christ living within is obscured. That's the reason the cross is so central because it's when the crucifixion comes that then Christ can be resurrected within and your life can reflect him. When I was a student in high school, I read a story that I've always loved. It was about Toscanini. 
Toscanini you don't know about, but he was the greatest of the symphony orchestra conductors in my days, younger days. If you were to take Leonard Bernstein and Eugene Ormandy and Zubin Mehta and a whole bunch of other people and roll them all together, you'd have sort of a pygmy uh, Toscanini, Arturo, was called the maestro. And when they called him the maestro, they meant there just wasn't anybody else in his category. That was the superlative. I always wanted to be a musician and didn't have it in me, and so you know how you compensate and project. So I read with great interest about him. They said he was a genius at conducting they said he could take 60 violins and have them play a staccato passage and tell which guy slurred a note, much to his chagrin. They said he would, uh, in rehearsal, take his horns and he'd pull out a silk handkerchief. He made them print his programs in silk so there'd be no noise in his audience. But he'd take out a silk handkerchief and drop it full out and let it float to the floor, and he'd say now to his trombonist, that's the way I want the music to come he could electrify not only an audience, but he could electrify an old orchestra that had played with the world's best. He was asked once to take an NBC symphony orchestra to South America on a tour. So he began gathering, collecting a group of musicians for that purpose. And uh, they began their rehearsals before their trip was to start. It was on a Tuesday afternoon in an NBC studio that they were rehearsing. Hot, no air conditioning in those days. They were playing a Beethoven symphony that every guy there had played probably a hundred times. And so he started to work with them on that. They started on the first movement and played it through and the way he conducted and his presence sort of electrified them and they began to halfway enjoy that. By the time they got through the second movement, they'd sort of lost themselves. And by the time they got into the third movement, they'd forgotten where they were, and it was a Tuesday afternoon rehearsal, and they were lost in Beethoven. When they finished the fourth movement in the final coda, and his baton dropped, Tuesday afternoon rehearsal, to a man, that whole orchestra stood straight up put their horns, their instruments down, and began to applaud violently. Toscanini looked at him and tried to shut him up. He hated applause. Couldn't get him still, and when they finally did stop, he looked at him and said, Men, that isn't Toscanini. That's Beethoven. You just never heard him before. You know, I loved that story because there's some of us going through the prosaicness of the Christian life. People are more conscious of us than they are of the one who lives within us. And can you tell me a nobler calling or a greater privilege or a higher honor than to come to that place where your life communicates Christ to other people.
I'll tell you one thing. The only way it adequately can is when you've come to the place where you've let him bring your life under his spirit's total control so that there's a sense in which you've lost your life and you've found it in Jesus. And he is your life. Is there still resistance? Maybe you need to hear his words. If any man will serve me, let him follow me to his Gethsemane and Calvary. And then I'll bring him to Easter morning.